Hello, Dance Robot Dance listeners. This is Mark. Uh, what you're about to listen to is a bonus episode I recorded with uh, DRD Pinch Hitter and my brother Paul while he was in Canada in October. Uh, you'll quickly notice some of my audio is a little clippy, which is the unfortunate side effect of my not understanding a bunch of the new toys that we use to record this episode. I apologize for the sound quality in spots, but since this is mostly Paul's list, um, you'll only hear me when I interrupt him. So thanks for listening. Uh, hope you enjoy it. episode yeah bonus well actually no you know what fuck this i'm gonna this is gonna be a numbered episode i think we're gonna include this in the canon the official canon Ooh, um, i'm canonical <laughs> yeah paul's uh joining the official i know you've been on numbered episodes yeah before. i've been we on don't just do num- uh what do you call it bonus, um, episodes. bonus episodes with you so that's fine it's just that my presence is always just a nice little treat it is a little bonus mm-hmm. um maybe for me maybe not for the other guys but yeah. uh fuck them they're not here so we're just gonna <laughs> do whatever we want so welcome once again guys this is uh dance robot dance um again we are in the basement which is very exciting for me because my means my hardware is working properly which mm-hmm. is super exciting yeah so um paul is still in the GTA or in the Niagara, well, whatever you want to call it, Southern Ontario. The Golden Horseshoe. In Canada, mm-hmm. So, which is exciting for me. Uh, so he and I are going to do an episode this week. And because we've talked about it a million times about catching him up in terms of his favorite albums, we thought that this week would be the ideal time since he's here mm-hmm. and we have nothing else to talk about than to catch him up and do his top 10 albums or his top, sorry, it'll be 20 through 11, 11 now, yes. right? To catch him up to where us and like the rest of your dance robot dance hosts are kind mm-hmm. of in terms of that list but i guess first like uh how's you tripping it's been a whirlwind i've been bouncing between st Catharines, milton and toronto meeting people hanging out with friends and family trying my best to make myself available to everybody maybe spreading myself a little bit thin we were talking about before you came down and i was talking to, i'm not sure i was talking to lees or i was talking to Becky, hello, Becky. I know you listen to the show occasionally, and you will definitely listen to this episode because Paul's name will be on it. But I was like, I, I know in atypical Paul fashion, it's going to get to about a weekend, and he's going to be like, oh, shit, I made too many promises to too many people because I just am a need to please everybody mm-hmm. kind of thing, as opposed to just being like, listen, fuckers, I'm going to be here for two weeks, make plans, like, and then if not, fuck you. That's yeah. the end of it. It's it's going to be Paul chasing people down. And I, it turned into that. That's exactly what I expected. Case in point, tonight I'm going to be meeting up with some friends in Toronto and then heading right back to Milton on the last go bus home. And then tomorrow will be my last full day in Canada. Yeah. But it wasn't... I I would say that it wasn't that bad in terms of it just felt like you were rushing up and down from like here to toronto to st Catharines, back and forth yeah a lot. like it could have been better blocked i was trying i tried i, I tried i tried but it i was, guess with uh 
Hi, mom. But I guess with mom planning things haphazardly, that's kind of what happens where you're skating back and forth. Yeah. And I think that there were some plans that were initially uh, set up like uh, my birthday is coming up next Friday. So, of course, my mother wanted to have a little uh, soiree yeah. and it changed so many times in one day that uh, the recording of the podcast had to be. Uh, yeah, this back. this this recording, this week's recording has been uh, fraught with peril in terms of like um, the only person who's been available on a consistent basis is me, mm-hmm. um, and with Christy busy and Tim away and like you shooting all over the place, I was half thinking I may have to just do a rambling Kevin Smith style, get stoned and you, you sit here and talk shit about yeah, you could have done a dance robot dance with special guest Jack Daniels. There is actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is in the books that I'm, I'm assuming at some point, Tim and Christy will both go missing and I will have to do that at some point. Mm. That's why I have you also. Yeah. And I just remind you to take that extra. I bought that microphone. It is ready to go. Yeah. So you can take that with you. Wonderful. My old one, not my new one. Yes. Of the course. new one's shiny and black. <laughs> yeah. I get to have the cartoony snowball one. Right? Yeah. The white one. Yeah. Mm. Sorry, buddy. That's uh, all okay. right. It, it, it matches my decor better anyway. Yeah, exactly. My, Whereas yeah. my glossy black, everything is that yeah. matches mine a little bit better. Mm hmm. All right, so um, yeah, so uh, let's do. Do you have a recap? Can you do your top ten real quick so we can kind of get? Uh, sure. Let me just pull it up on my Google Drive if you don't mind. Okay, so starting with number ten, Aaliyah's Aaliyah, self-titled. Number nine was The Knife, Silent Shout. Number eight was Vampire Weekend's Modern Vampires of the City. Number seven was Yeah Yeah Yeah's Fever to Tell. Number six, Wolf Parade, Apologies to the Queen Mary. Number five, Fiona Apple, The Idler Wheel. Number four, Lauren Hill, The mes- the Miseducation of Lauren Hill. Number three, Bjork, Homogenic. Number two, Neutral Milk Hotel in the Airplane Over the Sea. And number one of all time, favorite forever, Joanna Newsom's East. Okay. Okay. All right, so that brings us up to speed with where you left us off last time we did one of these, and I should have looked this up before, but I'll look it up now mm-hmm. um, and figure out where the last episode that you did one of these is. Fuck, how far back did it go? Oh, there it is. Okay, so uh, bonus episode, top 10 albums from Korea, was between episode 36 and 37. So that's the last time Paul did um, one of these, and that's where you'll find like the in-depth discussion of that list. Um, so why don't we hop right in and number 20. Number 20 is Lou Reed's Transformer. Um, this is Lou Reed's second solo album um, from 1972. And it contains his only mainstream hit, which was, hey man, take a walk on the wild side. Which if you don't know that sentence and that cadence, then you haven't been alive in North American pop culture probably for a long time. For a long time, yeah. Cause, yeah, because um, it's, it's been around for ever. Since 1972, it's been a very... Lou, Lou Reed's Transformer has gone through a lot of ups and downs over the years and always kind of remains in uh, as one of the most famous pieces of music that he's ever done. Yeah. Um, for those of you who don't know, Lou Reed was the lead singer, primary songwriter for the Velvet Underground, and then broke off as a solo artist after that band disbanded. And then fronted Metallica once. We're not going to talk about Lulu because... I think we should talk about we should Lulu. Ta- okay. Actually. No, I'm just kidding. Let's <laughs> talk about Lulu. I actually only listened to it once. I have no... 
opinion on it aside from like i'm not a fan of modern metallica yeah and i don't think lou reed has done anything good since like the 70s i think that's probably a fair assessment so <laughs> i was like this is going to be a shit show of a nightmare mm-hmm. um and it was a shit show and a nightmare yeah. so i for me i was weird for me to choose lou reed um as my first uh as hedwig put it in hedwig and the angry inch crypto homo rockers from the 1970s um, because what that's kind of the blanket term that she uses to describe David Bowie, Lou Reed, and Iggy Pop. Yeah, I was actually surprised to see, and this is just me knowing you as well as I do, mm-hmm. um, to see Lou Reed on your list before I saw specifically David Bowie. Right, and this is uh, a testament to the how solid this album is from front to back. Whereas I've, I as much as you know i love david bowie he's yeah. a, an icon and like a spirit animal of mine yeah there i can't point to a full album of david bowie's that i love in its entirety as much as i love transformer we've talked about and i, and I want to probably have to do an episode uh and tim when you listen to this uh, make a note but like we'll have to do a specifically bowie episode with the three of us because mm-hmm. we've had conversations before where we're like specifically when it comes to doing the the album ranking series where it's like i love bowie and like i fucking love like there's albums of his that i adore but like Mm -hmm. none of them are so consistently good Mm -hmm. like through the whole way through that i can be like yeah they they belong in my top well so far top 20 probably top 30 you probably won't see bowie yeah until like after that if if i had to rank musical careers or individual artists as in a rank then david bowie would be top three easily easily But I would say that is that is that objectively or subjectively like your personal one or like probably I would say objectively considering who he is objectively top three objectively but subjectively is for sure like in my probably top five but I don't know what top three top three would be like we're totally we're totally tangenting already yeah which is awesome is exactly what I wanted us to do like the Beatles are top three Mm -hmm. like I have to put Zeppelin Mm -hmm. that high. But my the problem I wouldn't put Zeppelin that high, honestly. But we'd be in there though. Probably probably top five. I I would put him top three. You would see like think about where I am with hard rock. Yeah, and, like Zeppelin. Everything that I love. Yeah, is directly. It's like Beatles, Zeppelin, the world. Thing. Yeah. So I mean, but there's a bit of a difference there. But like for glam rock singer songwriter yeah. David Bowie speaks to me a yeah, lot. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I completely agree. I just I'm trying to figure figure out where I would place him exactly. Right. But. Because I think that like David Bowie's career certainly had its ups and downs. Um, Some rough shit in the eighties, man, uh, and and the early nineties too. I'm like, I will not defend Buddha of Suburbia at all. But I don't mind that. Right? Oh uh, no, Buddha, I don't like. It's Earthling. I Earthling. Like. No, not Earthling. Sorry, Outside's early nineties, isn't it? Mid. Outside's awesome. Yeah, ninety five, I think. Yeah, but uh, that being said, Lou Reed. Uh, besides Velvet Underground and this album, I don't really like any of his other stuff. I, uh, and I was actually surprised. I went. I went back and like Paul gave me his list ahead of time, so I could go and listen to it. And I was listening to Transformer, and I was like, I know I've listened to this in the past. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I don't feel like it's anywhere near as good as the, especially the like the Velvet Underground record. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think there's anything in there that's as strong as that. I don't. I, I was like, I like it, but like, I think it's like the Stones for me. Yeah. I'm like, when I hear these songs covered, I kind of see them a little bit better. Like, I think like he's there's something there where it's like, great songwriter, 
maybe not necessarily a great performer, mm-hmm. which is something where I'm like, that's the same reason why like Bob Dylan doesn't pop into my top whatever because mm-hmm. like he's not like he writes great music, but he's a shit performer. Right. Well, okay, somebody, some somebody's gonna get pissed. Someone's gonna get pissed shit, about that like, for sure. <laughs> fuck you. He's a terrible. Like he sounds like shit even on record with Pro Tools. You can't make that guy sound great. Yeah. And I think Lou Reed kind of not as badly, but does definitely fall into that kind of. I don't know. For me, the um, the thing that Lou Reed did well was create one uh, the the that cool guy persona, that cool guy New Yorker persona that is like cu- currently still indelible and has been tried to be reinvented again and again in various through punk through like the garage rock revival and lou reed is kind of quintessentially that new york cool rock singer songwriter guy yeah because he's still like the guy who would be like he was probably at cbgb's when the ramones first played yeah i mean like he was probably around he was or just he was even oh he might have been over it already and and just like like, i'm above it he he may have been like the one guy the ramones like from like that old scene that the Mm. ramones would have been like yeah he's still cool yeah and those guys fucking hated everybody yeah and uh as far as the the Velvet Underground albums go, like I found them pretty inconsistent, and you know, I I will defend Nico to the death, and, and that album, the Velvet Underground and Nico, but it's still like very inconsistent. Where now speaking finally about Transformer itself, this album creates such a picture of Lou Reed's idea of cool New York yeah. and all the the bullshit that went around it but also the beauty in it as well. Yeah, there's definitely like um this that sense of like urban living in the album. Yeah. That you get like it's very much like oh he's strolling from neighborhood to neighborhood almost. Yeah. Like it's almost like a walk through Maybe not the boroughs, but like at least Manhattan kind on, of thing. On the wild side, yeah, maybe. Long, yeah. <laughs> Fucking yeah. walking around in New York in the 60s and 70s would have been a goddamn nightmare. So, Or a dream. And this is one of the things I love about the weirdness of this album. Like uh, the way that he um, talks about... He has some very romantic songs on this album. Yeah. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit and say my favorite song on the album. Um, and the one that I generally recommend to people is satellite of love. And it is a very strange, but earnest piano ballad that doesn't, it doesn't ping the cool guy vibes that the rest of the album does, but still speaks to um, the like urban sprawl and the decay of uh, civilization as we know it while expanding into the far reaches of the universe yeah. and still talking about how love is the universal and it's quite gorgeous and he had and these, probably the best song on the album too. and also has david bowie singing at the end of it that's right yeah um, and it's been covered by like everybody a number you, of artists you yeah. two being one of the more prominent uh, well it was because they did it live on the zutv tour mm-hmm. like ad nauseum like they used it as a lead into something that i can't remember right now yeah i should have had that information in my head already yeah but it's a it's a beautiful song and it's a really strange and fun album like there are some things that don't hold up about it especially lou reed's view on women that has you know unfortunately stood the test of time as these kind of like um figments or these um ideas of these um beautiful young new york nymphets or whatever that um are like all drugs and causing problems for the men in their lives and shit like that rock and roll almost it's almost like the the pre manic pixie dream girl yeah (laughs) like they like every every girl he describes on this record is penny lane 
Yeah, you know they're I mean? the factory girls yeah. for like Andy Warhol's yeah. factory girls, yeah. and Andy Warhol being such an important part of the scene at the time, and the one who linked up Nico and the Velvet Underground. Yeah, and designed that amazing banana cover yeah. for that album. Um, but I think that Lou Reed. Oh, I, I have a lot to say about uh, Andy Warhol that we don't we won't get into today. <laughs> yeah, but uh, as, as a uh, 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 I want to say art historian, but like as a student of art history, it is. I, I have I have things to say, but we won't get into it. Yeah, um, but Lou Reed's Transformer um, is a a really indelible trip through that era of New York when, like, this is bef- this was around the Free Love Movement. It's after sixty nine, uh, right? Well, the seventies really like is when the hippies were. Um, sixty nine is like the weird, summer of love, but like that was weird, like the beginning of it. It's a weird thing. Yeah, but a lot of people associate hippies in the sixties, but the seventies is really when things were going down. But um, New York always had that art house cool thing going because of Andy Warhol and like the subsequent, you know, the beat poets, etc. That's all happening all at the same time while Lou Reed's doing this. Yeah, and it all kind of this album encompasses all of that stuff yeah. and i think that's one of the reasons i, I love it so much. you're so into that I just, it doesn't strike me as something that you would be i i love the idea of artistic community i really like the idea that uh, like musicians poets um visual artists they were all trying to collaborate in some way or another andy warhol with lou reed with nico with the beats with all of those things kind of working together Fair enough. um well as a uh, as a uh budding poet i guess that would be something that you would see yeah glom on to yeah like i mean around this time was also you know on the road jack kerouac and yeah, things like true. that but also this is also a, a movement that i distance myself from a lot because it's very straight white male oriented um and it's kind of it kind well, of ignores fair, and up until the last 20 years every movement's going to be straight white male oriented well, you know or means, so. r- ripping off like the Harlem Renaissance that happened, yeah. you know, seven years before, or, yeah. or no, no, way, way before that. Yeah. Anyway, um, there was a lot of things happening in that era, and this is a cool snapshot of it. It's a very particular snapshot of like a very cool group of friends, yeah. Which I thought, and as obnoxious as this, these people could be, they made some pretty cool music. Yeah. And Lou Reed, particularly on this album. Um, made a song that I satellite of love that I could have on repeat for the rest of my life. I love it that much. I still like Bono singing it better than Lou Reed. That's fine, but I can't. the The final swell in Satellite of Love when David Bowie's voice rises up from the back. Yeah, is, but that's that's just because Bowie's there. Bowie's he brings Bowie's, everything up. Bowie is Bowie. He really did. All right, let's uh, let's move along. Your uh, number nine album, number nineteen. 19, sorry. God damn. Number 19 um, would be Franz Ferdinand's self-titled debut um, during the Pitchfork era, which I don't know if it's still going on or not, but in the early... I think it's... I would call it dead now, but I don't know. This was in the early to mid-2000s. They actually put a review out for... They reviewed a Deftones album recently. I think you might have sent it to me. Mm. They re-reviewed White Pony and gave it above an eight yeah which for pitchfork historically it would never happen would have happened before yeah i honestly think they're trying to become like a legitimate p 
because Condé Nast bought the. Oh, is that what happened? That's what happened. Okay. <laughs> so they're um, becoming more populist. Yeah, which is um, weird. 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 Yeah, because they were always. I don't know. I fucking. I hate yeah. Pitchfork, I guess. You know what I mean? I yeah. still like, I get my news from them a lot mm-hmm. of the time. Like my music news comes from them a lot for yeah. American bands because they it's just yeah. weird because like the 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 picture I have of like you reading those reviews and me just being like, these guys are such dicks. Like yeah. they hate everything that isn't just like up its own ass they hate seventeen it. times back around. I don't know. They hated a lot of the stuff that they love too in a lot of ways. Yeah, it was really weird. It was like it's such a weird mm-hmm thing to glom onto for a scene yeah because it's like you never know what they're gonna hate yeah but that being said there was universal acclaim for this particular album franz ferdinand were a uh are a band out of scotland um and they when i think of that weird you know uh descriptor angular guitars this is the album that i think of the um the guitar riff to take me out um, yeah, it's kind of like the trope codifier for that. Yeah. I always think whenever somebody says angular guitars, my first thought is Interpol. But like, yeah. I feel like the, these two bands are like. They're of the same era. I, yeah. <laughs> I think, yeah, same era, but I feel like they're like. And maybe this is inaccurate, but I feel like Franz Ferdinand is the lighter side to the darker, like to Interpol's darker side of the coin kind of thing. I, I would agree with that. I would say that um, Franz Ferdinand oddly play off of a lot of the same art house motif stuff that Lou Reed does Um, they definitely embody that more than uh, uh, Interpol's more um, goth Joy Division-y Cure side whereas um, Franz Ferdinand was more influenced by Gang of Four and Sparks who they actually formed a band with they formed a band with Sparks that was FFS um, and they recorded an album together Um, I I don't think I've heard that one yeah so this album um, was an instant classic for me. Um, it was so. Oh, I remember, it got a lot of play around. Yeah, it was because it was one of those albums that when I went to my indie dance nights in Toronto, it was inevitably a, one of the songs from this album would be playing. Like it was something that I would hear. Like, what was that place in St. Catharines? The Red Square. Red Square. The Red yeah. Square. Yes, was also um, an indie dance night, and "Take Me Out" inevitably would be played. Or when they finally re- released that um, remix of "This Fire," the one with the lots of the this fire with lots of f's before yeah, it. Yeah, one I I actually think is probably the better version. Absolutely, it's the it's it's like the um and this is me this is me being me, but like I totally liken it to the um the re-recorded even flow mm-hmm. where there's like they there's the album version of it mm-hmm. that is kind of I don't it's not plotting until you hear the remix yeah or the re- re-record whereas like all of a sudden you hear the re-record and it's got. Um, and even flow in particular has uh, Dave Abruzzi. He's like the second Pearl Jam's kind of. There's a guy who recorded ten was Dave Cruson, mm-hmm. and then like there was a couple people in between, and then like Abruzzi's took over and did like th- most of the ten tour, and like the rest of the. And he was a very like propulsive, high energy drummer. Yeah. So like that version of even flow is just like fucking cymbal nuts, and it's like really moves really fast. And I feel like the that remix of this fire is like the same kind of thing where it's like I, this is a good song mm-hmm. but just turn it up like yeah. 50% like speed it up 50%. Yeah, that's and that's what <laughs> they did. They added um the the guitar riffs, they increased the tempo, the guitar riffs got a little bit more tight and it's a little crunchier too. Yeah, actually. it's a little crunchier and now it is impossible for me to listen to the album version yeah, I can't. when I know I think I actually have it replaced um in my in your playlist. Well, like my actual copy of um, 
Franz Ferdinand mm-hmm. of this of this album. Yeah, on here I'm looking at it and I don't even see the. Um, oh no, there it is. Never mind. The original album. The original album one is is still where it's supposed to be, but right next to it is the uh, the, the remix, the the 3F version. Yeah, it's uh, this album. Uh, it was cool. It was very. Uh, uh, it's. See, I always thought they seemed dorkier to me than yeah, like it, the rest of those guys. You know what I mean? Like. I never felt like these were the. I never felt like they were the cool ones. Yeah, out of that, like, I felt like the Strokes. The Strokes seemed cool in like a way that I didn't care about. Yeah, and Interpol seemed cool in a very forced, but like obviously like New Yorky cool kind yeah. of way. Whereas like the Franz Ferdinand guys, I was always like, oh, they're the dorky ones of this group. Like Dor- they're the Weezer of this like yeah scene. But dorky cool, and let, and yeah, let yeah. me qualify that with like a, a great example of that is first of all the name themselves and um, take me the take me out video where they're referencing the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, yeah, which is like. Such a weird cut to make as a pop band. Yeah, exactly. And um, these kinds of more like arch uh, references to history and art and art motifs and things like that um, was part of what made Franz Ferdinand so appealing to me. Um, One of my favorite songs on the album is The Dark of the Matinee. Um, It's better in the matinee. (laughs) They're uh, very much... Um, Which is such a weird European thing to like yeah. say, you know what I mean? I would say that they 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 always have this kind of um, undertone of not even undertone of sex, but like definitely very. Uh, this is like he's talking about sex all the time, the entire time. album through, basically. But it's always with these very like like obtuse or just like bizarre images. Yeah, yeah. Um. Another example would be like the rather obvious darts of pleasure. Yeah. Um, it, but it's such a fun song that you like totally forgive how in your face that image well, is. Like, and I, we were talking when we talked about this album. Um, I think we were talking about doing this episode, and we were talking about it. And mm-hmm. like my favorite song on this album is the is Michael. Yeah, which is like a a gay love ballad, or like I don't know how what you would describe it's a, it as. Da- it's, it's a, a fucking wicked song. Yeah. So like when he's singing like "Come All Over Me," I'm like, mm. this makes me feel strange. Which is uh, he only sings that when it's live. He only, d- oh, really? d- yeah. So, because uh, it's always so come and dance with me uh, on that for the bridge of the song. But when uh, he gets to the end, oh, that we did cl- see them live once, right? Was it them and TV on the radio we saw? Yes. And I, we, I, I've seen Franz Ferdinand three times live. Yeah, I've only seen them the one time. But when he does the the bridge, the final bridge to the chorus, um, instead of so come and dance with me, so he says so come all over me. Yeah, um, and I don't know why that that's just stuck in my head. Like that is like that is the song to me now. Yeah, for uh, for me, like Michael is like a da- a gay dance song that no mainstream gay would ever dance to. Um, because like it's not uh it's uh, like a uh a indie rock song performed by four ostensibly skinny white straight guys. And it's not. It doesn't speak to the same kind of. Is he straight? I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't never know either. Ostensibly, I th- I heard that he was da- dating Eleanor Friedberger at one point from Fiery Furnaces. Oh, okay. Uh, so I don't know. But that being said, it's such a fun song. Yeah. And it's definitely one that I have on my workout playlist. Yeah, um, and I would love to dance to that song in a gay club. But I've rec- I've requested it many times, and people are just like. This isn't Madonna. This isn't Beyonce. Ugh. And it, I think it lasts, usually it lasts about 30 seconds before someone changes it to something else. Yeah. Kills the dance floor. boy. But I love it and I would dance to it at any time. Um, but yeah, this, this album is, it's 
the pacing is amazing on it. Everything has this kind of like they really appeal to the danceability of it while still being something you could sit and listen to um, because there's a lot of fun wordplay on it. It's very uh, like like tragically romantic too. It's got a vibe to it. Like um, you see her, you can't hold her. They're, they play up a lot of like almost comical artsy drama while still keeping that songwriting so tight. And it makes it such a fun listen. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, did you have a song? My song pick for this album is going to be hmm, it's going to be uh The Dark of the Matinee. Okay. I because out of a technicality I can't pick this fire the remix because it's not actually on the album. Yeah, that's true. I guess that is kind of a weird like thing. Cause that is probably when I think of this album, I think of that version of this mm-hmm. song, and that's my favorite song on this album. Yeah. I like Michael a lot too. Yeah, I like. Uh, if I could do a top three on that, it would definitely. Well, even "Take Me Out" is an See, amazing like song. See, actually, "Take Me Out" is one of those songs that, like, every once in a while, I'll break out and like play on drums. Yeah, I just like that, like the tss, tss, like that yeah. constant going of yeah. it. I like that very mechanical version of it. Yeah, so. this is one of those albums where I think almost every song could have been a potential single. Almost yeah, not all, yeah, like close. there are a few, but this one is like. The songs are strong, and it's a well-sequenced album. It's fun. Um, highly recommend it. It's just great. Cool. Um, all right, so that's number not 19. Yeah. I'm going to have problems with this the whole way through. I should have numbered these on my list, too. Yeah. Uh, so number 18. 18 would be Kate Bush's Hounds of Love. Um, this is the 1985 classic album, and is often regarded as her best work. Which is weird. Um, maybe you can explain this to me. Why is it not on Spotify? I don't know. It's really weird because I went looking for it on Spotify to download it to listen to it. Yeah. Um, I may or may not have paid for it, so internet, you can guess. Um, but like, it's not. It, it didn't show up on my Spotify, and I was like, "Is is he on? Is he on drugs? Is this a live album or something like that?" Because live albums aren't allowed. I just want you to know. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I had when I went back. It is just like a, it's a studio album. And I was like, "Oh, it's not on Spotify." It really weirded me out. Anyway, sorry. That was my. Weird, like, uh, this took me this took me longer than 30 seconds to access it um 2017 yeah. add <clears throat> riddled jerk off kind of like impression was immediately like this is not immediately accessible i am upset why yeah i think that she must be an apple music exclusive because i've got her on apple music you have that album there? i have this album on apple music i have all of her albums on apple music because most of them are on spotify but <clears throat> i just it was just this one that i was like i can't okay. yeah so talk about it That's okay fine. so kate bush in general is considered to be one of the great art pop provocateurs. Um, And she started off really early on, 1979, as this weird outlier. And her big hit at the beginning was a, was Wuthering Heights, that very bizarre song that like glosses over the the cliff's notes of the book of the same name. Um, But it has... um, 27 million listens on Spotify. Yeah, it has What's His Name on Guitar zeppelin guy jimmy page jimmy page on guitar yeah i believe if i'm or someone else who's really i you know me and 70s rock not the best yeah, no not your thing um yeah this yeah see this album's on spotify yeah so um this album has probably some of her biggest hits and it is also um one of her strangest ones because it follows a similar 
structure to um, Bowie's Berlin trilogy albums, where the front half is loaded with like these mega hits, like these brilliant like pop songs. And then the second half is more like the cerebral art house kind of uh, experimental side. And, uh, but the first half, the experimental side is pretty strong. And I would argue that it's stronger than any one of David Bowie's Berlin trilogy experiments on the second half. Yeah. Yeah. But the, and the front half has just these songs that have dominated my life since I first heard them. Um, it starts off with uh, running up that hill. Yeah. Uh, a deal with God. And Kate Bush has always been a a purveyor of the, the female experience and never shies away from really digging into um, the disparity between genders and how that plays out. And she was never afraid to be weird to the, for the sake of being weird or weird for the sake of getting a point across. Yeah. She is a she's and she's a great performer too. Like in the the music video era before MTV was like a huge hit, she started doing music videos and they were strange and they were very art school performative but also just like unforgettable. Definitely. Apparently, uh, Weathering Heights is uh, St. Vincent's go-to karaoke song. Oh. I'm trying to figure out who did that, because was, that was a guitar solo we were talking about, right? Yes, yeah, so Weathering Heights guitar solo. And I can't seem to see who actually did it. But anyway, continue what you were saying. Um, so, the yeah, the front half of this album is just... Okay, it's played by Ian Berenson, best known for his work with Alan Parsons. Oh, the Alan Parsons Project. Okay. Yeah. Should, Kate Bush was always well respected in the musical community among you everybody. Know, yeah, everybody, yeah. And she's uh, uh, she was uh, super influential on like a lot of um, like what she, I don't know what to, how you would describe that. Like not Lilith Fair, like the harder edged women in the '90s, like really glom onto Kate Bush a lot. Uh, like, Bjork, Fiona Apple, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fiona Apple was the one I was thinking of particularly, yeah. and like I know like Alanis Morissette sites mm-hmm. where yeah, um, an influence, and I think like when you get into like the kind of like harder like whatever like women in hard rock kind of thing, like I know yeah. Paz is a big fan of her. Yeah, and, like um, Oftomar, Oftomar, like, Saint Vincent, yeah, yeah, Saint Vincent. Um, the one thing that um Kate Bush has always had on other artists, and I don't know if it's just a the her training, her vision, but she's always been super uncompromising with the way that she releases her albums. She she never cap- really capitulated to trends and she always um, just made her- Kate Bush music. I You can- can't point to anyone for albums and say, this is obviously like her trying to like glom on to a trend. It's always just her being her. Yeah. And, but that's a, that can be very challenging because it's either you love what she does or you have, you find it super pretentious and whatever. I obviously adore it. And Hounds of Love in particular is a great encapsulation of everything that she does so well. Big songs like Big Sky or Running Up That Hill or like those uh, just unfettered emotion of Hounds of Love, the title track. Um, And she performed a lot of the instruments herself. She's incredibly 
multi-talented. She's a uh, she's like a quintessential recording artist. Yeah, like I, I'm sorry, I don't have a lot to say about this one. Like I've listened to it twice now because mm-hmm. it was the one that I had the hardest time getting through um, when I was listening to stuff yesterday. First of all, because I couldn't get it, and then second of all, because I was just listening to it and like it wasn't sitting right at that point, so I was mm-hmm. kind of doing it. It was like doing due diligence kind of thing. Sometimes you're not necessarily like in the mood for this. Yeah, thing. so I was kind of sure. like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I just listened to like what else is on here. Um, oh, I just listened to your number, I guess, 16, and was just like, I need to tune out. I need to get away from Paul style music for a little while, because mm-hmm. that, that album was like, whoo. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, no, Kate Bush is, she can be tough for some people, but for me, like, this, the fir- the front half of this album is, like, easy to listen to. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's the, the back half, the exper- experimental half that I have. Even I have trouble listening to it, but when I sit down and listen to it, I'm in awe of it. Yeah, because I find her uh, her sound experiments were so uh, were really forward thinking. Yeah, but that also like that kind of thing is not something like you're just gonna go. It's not the kind of thing you're gonna sit down and just be like, I'm gonna listen to. Mm-hmm. I want to listen to like this one sound like soundscape piece. Because mm, yeah. that's part of the like, I'm listening to an album as a whole kind of thing is those kind of pieces, and it's like. You can talk about any band that does that kind of thing, whether it be like on the hard rock, like metal side, like with Tool or the Deftones Mm -hmm. or like where they do that kind of soundscape stuff or like Bowie doing those experiments in like the 70s or uh, like Depeche Mode in the 80s doing that kind of stuff. Like that is part and parcel of doing an album Mm -hmm. and it's part and parcel of the experience of that album. But like taking those out of the album's context fucks them up. Yeah. So like if you're, if you're taking, you like, Whereas you can take a pop song like Weathering Heights, or I mean, it's not a pop song, but it is because yeah, for sure. Like you can take that out of the context of the album and be like, "Oh, that's an awesome song." Whereas Mm -hmm. you take one of those experiments out of the album, just like, "Hey, listen to this." What do you Mm -hmm. think? People be like, "Yeah, the fuck is this droney shit or whatever?" Like, I'm not saying that's what it is, but like, that's what I mean, you know. And I think one of the problems I have with the way that this album is structured, and it's the only um, criticism I have of the album, is the same problem I have with David Bowie's structure is that all of the the pop songs that you can take out of context and just listen to are all front loaded and in the back instead of interspersing the Stop. the instrumentals you, you're, you're 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 here you want to know this is me because this is i'm looking back on it from no, uh, but you're not thinking about the format oh it's lp yes i know right? yeah. so like and this is something that like i've run into with people we're like this, the back half of this album is all weird shit and experimental i'm like because it's garbage it's a garbage dump side it's side 2 and they're like side what do you two, mean right? side 2 and I'm like, this shit was recorded in mind to go on an LP. Right. You're absolutely right. So all the right. cool fucking pop stuff is on side A, because then you don't have to flip it. If you like, if you listen to the whole album the whole way through, you'd be like, oh, I know what it is, and there's all this soundscapey weird stuff on the second side yeah. that I don't want to listen to. Right. I just want to listen to the 20 minutes of awesome shit. Yeah. And that's literally what side A is, right? That's fair. Yeah, right? you're absolutely and right. And so like, you really get into like, I mean, the Beatles had stuff on both sides that were awesome, and Zeppelin was the same way. But like, the, 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 when he started getting into experimental stuff, that's kind of how it worked. It was like Bowie would do like pop songs for side A, mm-hmm. and then you get into the second side. It's like, well, I'm going to fuck around because nobody gives a shit about mm-hmm. this because it's just getting put on an LP and it's going to get played twice. Yeah. So like, I guarantee you, there's probably copies of like this album or like some of those Bowie albums where like if you bought the LP used mm-hmm. side A would sound like it had been played three trillion times 
Yeah. And then if you flipped it and put it on side B, it may as well have been the first fucking time you played the LP. Right. You know what I mean? In terms of sound quality, because they had not been worn down the way the side A had been. Yeah. So cool. So in terms of the song that I would pick for um, everyone uh, to listen to, it would definitely be the opening track, Running Up That Hill. Yeah. And it's one of the more popular songs, and it's got a very famous music video with Kate Bush doing her uh, interpretive dance stuff that she loves to do on stage while she's singing as well with that voice. She's an incredible performer. If you have a chance to see any videos of her live performance, um, watch them because she's mesmerizing. I'm always impressed by people who put in the um, the aerobic workout while they're, and not necessarily like the dancers, but even just like rock singers who would just like go out of their way to just be fucking all over the stage. Yeah. Like an Axl Rose who's just like, for, like in his prime, not anymore. But not like, anymore, yeah. Actually, to be fair, he ran around a fair bit when I saw him. But like, mm-hmm. like in the 90s when he was just like, he'd be singing and running full tilt from one end of the stage to the other for no reason. Like yeah. I love like and still be able to keep up that voice. That's an impressive feat to me. And I like when I was flipping through videos, watching Kate Bush just kind of like manically boot around the stage. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, cool. Cool. All right, so let's roll into number. I guess this is seventeen. Number seventeen. This is Kala by MIA. Okay, this one you're on your own for because. Okay. I listened to it once and was like, nah, nah, nothing. Okay. So MIA um, is a uh, Sri Lankan via London uh, hip hop artist yeah. who is uh, has been a really controversial figure since she's been releasing albums. Her first album uh, gained a lot of prominence in 2005. It was called Aurlar, and this is the Kala would be the sequel to that. Um, and they are both wonderful albums that I really, really like, but I chose Kala because this is what really solidified my love for her. And I think it's overall a stronger, cohesive it's album. It's a piece. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It is, um, Kala, Kala is an album that speaks to a lot of, uh, themes about masculinity in particular because the, her, I believe the first, no, Aurelar and Kala are like a mother and father piece. She said that one of the albums is about her mother and one of them is about her father. And I can't exactly remember which one is which, but Kala has um, uh, uh, songs like uh, Boys and uh, $20 that speak a lot to how masculinity is performed, especially in um, third world countries or countries that are developing still. Um, And, you know... Uh, she talks about how twenty dollars can get you can buy you an assault rifle in these countries, and what what that means for the performance of masculinity, while still, I don't know, uh, speaking to our our dependence on technology. And uh, people used to give MIA a lot of shit for being really suspicious about using the internet and what that meant for individual privacy and individual rights. This was before the big NSA scandal where they were tracking Google, Microsoft and all that stuff. And everyone was just kind of shrugged and were people were outraged, but nothing ever really came of it as a scandal. Um, well, what, you, you can't do anything. You can't do anything about it. But uh, MIA just kind of like sat back and said, uh, yeah, actually I was right the whole time. Um, so yeah, you are like sort of the Radiohead guys. You yeah, know what I mean, like <laughs> yeah, and they spoke to the same kind of things, yeah. but but well, she's much more direct. Radiohead's a um, 
I almost wish you could have been on that episode because there is something to be said about like the 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 obtuseness to the poetry. Yeah. Whereas like MIA was like lyrically not being obtuse. You know what I mean? Like very direct. very very rarely obtuse. And one of the things I love about her is her directness. And but the and as a woman of color from Sri Lanka, like that or of Sri Lankan descent, the the uh, the politics of that more directly affect her than it affects Tom York. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So um, these things were like of immediate interest to her. Now that being said, she's had some you know controversies. Like she married a billionaire oil baron, oil tycoon, or the son of an oil tycoon who was also a prince in like the Middle East. Divorced him, had some kids with him. Divorced him, um, and she's come back and forth in vogue in uh but this uh, the album kala is kind of like undisputably her masterpiece, masterpiece yeah. her best uh, people say that her best song came after which would be bad girls um but kala because yeah, when i was listening to this album i was like i know this one song yeah from like being at the club or whatever yeah that was that came after this album yeah yeah, yeah. so kala but kala front to back with the exception of one song that I really don't like um, is I think is a, a fantastic piece of political hip hop. Yeah. Um, and it was really important at the time. And I still think it's really important to listen to um, her. Yeah. Like I said, her, the quality of her work has gone up and down, but uh, this is an album that the first two, uh, first two albums listened in to in tandem are a great listen cool. still to this day um, did you pick a song uh twenty dollar would be my song off for this one off yeah. this one okay um yeah absolutely cool all right um so we are at number 15 now number 16 16 i can't count i'm sorry number 16 is sunset Rub- always been paul paul can attest he's been he's known me my his whole life anyway um math has never been my strong suit no it certainly hasn't no this is this, this is his strong suit either so he can go fuck himself i i, I threw math better than i did <laughs> yeah, i sure did yeah um sunset rubdown's dragon slayer okay so sunset rubdown is the project of spencer krug and we've talked about him before uh, when we were talking about wolf parades apologies to the queen mary he is one of the two front men for that group but Sunset Rubdown um, is... Who the, canceled on us for, like, literally tonight. Oh, literally tonight. We were supposed to go see Wolf Parade on, uh, in Guelph? Yeah, Guelph. Yeah. And, yeah, they canceled on us. The bastards. Yeah. Uh, but Spencer Krug and uh, Dan Beckner, they both have their side projects. Um, What's the other guy's side project? Handsome Furs. Handsome Furs. Oh, okay. And that's the rock side project. And if you're looking for the indie pop one, this is what you get. This is Sunset Rub. Well, indie pop might be stretching it a little bit. It, like it's kind of proggy, but proggy, yeah. weird indie pop. Yeah. Yes. Experiment actually experimental indie pop might be the the way I would phrase yeah. it. While still like holding on to a lot of like cl- pretty classical instrumentation. Like if you listen to the first Yeah, but like used in obtuse ways. Yes. That's so, absolutely like, true. This is like um I love I loved that that Wolf Parade album. And then um I'm a hands like a casual handsome first fan. This was the side project like the Spencer Krug stuff was a bridge too far for me. 
where I was just like, I, I, I don't like his voice very mm-hmm. much. And it's so prompt, like in the Wolf Parade stuff, they bury it a little bit more and it's like, it's wrapped in like a bigger sound. Yeah. Whereas this is a little bit more sparse and he's way more out front mm-hmm. and his vocals are an acquired taste. They are indeed, which is uh, true for a lot of my favorite vocalists. Yeah. Um, so that being said though, um, this is the third sunset rub down. No fourth subset sunset rubdown album the first one was like a rough spencer krug solo thing and then uh it then he started adding band members and then it solidified into its own band um and not really a spencer krug solo project so he made yet another solo project after that called moonface because sunset rubdown evolved into its own thing um, and I would say that um, when it comes to like that uh, indie rock era of the the 2000s to the 2010s, um, the three, the second, third, and fourth Sunset Rubdown albums are some of my favorites. This one, the la- kind of the final Sunset Rubdown full album was being Dragon Slayer is my all time favorite of the bunch. Um, but I go back and forth a little bit on the other two. Um, Dragon Slayer is. Uh, the themes of Dragon Slayer kind of veer towards like uh, performative love, the idea of like what it means to be romantic, what it means to be. Um, Spencer Krug likes to talk about performance a lot, like the idea that all all the world's a stage kind of vibe. Uh, he's brought this. He brought that theme up a lot on his uh, third album, uh, and brings it back and kind of uh, threads the needle. I guess for the final album and figures it out from the very beginning of the, the album on silver moons, the opening song we're talking about going off to the ballet and um, the idea of passing on the torch from uh, generation to generation and things like that. Like these big uh, milestones in your life, like the idea of uh, moving things on and generations and whatnot. And it's all done on, very beautifully through these like kind of chamber pop moments, but also having some pretty serious guitar solos uh, interspersed in between. I would say that these albums can be kind of challenging. They're not immediately accessible. Right. And I was listening to it yesterday and was just kind of like, I like his voice in spots, Mm -hmm. but his voice in a concentrated burst, like listening to a whole album Mm -hmm. is kind of like, Part of me kind of just like fucking learn to sing, I guess. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> he has an interesting voice, but sometimes he uses it in a way that's just like, this is not pleasant to listen to. I'm sure there's a way you could have phrased this where it was like, sounded good, I guess. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. But like... He's always, he's kind of of the the same school as, you know, Joanna Newsom and uh, what's his name? Neutral Milk Hotel guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Why can't I remember his Magnum? name? Magnum? Right yeah, Jeff Mangum. Um... And it's more about conveying an emotion than conveying, like, singing beautifully. And I know that's, that sounds like a cop-out. It's fair. Totally a cop-out because, like, I mean, I don't even say Eddie, okay? Maynard does exactly the same thing mm-hmm. and is one of the greatest vocalists alive. Right? Yeah. Fair. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, so, it's, just, it's just one of those things, like, I understand that, like, everybody should have a voice and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes I'm like, I don't want to listen to somebody who can't sing. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. 
auto-tune, man. There's a reason for it, I yeah, guess. That's true. And um, I... I'm against auto-tune, too. I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, for Sunset Rubdown, I come for the beauty of the music, but I stay for the lyrics. Yeah. Um, I always loved... I always yeah. thought and that's that... Where, that's the... That, I think that um, maybe the big dividing line between you and I is like as much as I like lyrics and stuff like that, their performance, I think, is more important mm. to me. And that might be why you like Handsome Furs better than you like yeah. Sunset Rubdown. Because it's a little bit more polished. Mm-hmm. And like, like it's a little bit more like... It's also a little bit more direct. It's a little bit more of a rock thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? So. And yeah. And I like the Handsome Furs, like in terms of their songwriting, like it's pretty good. I'm not yeah. saying that the lyrics are bad. I just... I've, there's so much... One of the things I like about albums generally is that there's a, a mystery to unpack. We can take the, the... Yeah, there's a thematic thing that you have to, like, unravel. Unravel right? and follow that that maybe a narrative thread throughout yeah. the album or even each individual song, like on this album, speaks to a different part of that theme. Yeah. Um, and it's... Uh, the imagery that um, Spencer Krug creates uh, is very... Um, very dreamlike he always exists in more of a dreamlike thing like even like joanna newsom is my favorite lyricist but her um songwriting and lyrics are grounded more in reality than oh yeah absolutely and like lived sorry, experience. You, i'm sorry po- visual visual gags on an audio podcast i mean did it again when he said uh more more grounded in reality i probably made the face that was like you're out of your goddamn mind. She speaks to her her experiences with you know like with difficult well, imagery driven than like a direct story would you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there's no. I'm trying to think of somebody who speaks very much to like directly narrative kind of stuff, and not lean on the same fucking like three people that I've been leaning on this entire episode. But like, who speaks directly to something like like a springsteen kind of like mm, okay, you know yeah. I mean? like directly telling a story yeah fucking, the factory you know, worker tom fucking petty tom petty yeah right like she was an american girl oh, yeah, yeah. free fallen yeah or whatever mm-hmm. like this directly tells you like this is the story that i'm following right and there's no imagery to it it's well i mean there, he's painting that it's imagery but it's like yeah he's not telling you that story with imagery yeah he's telling you that story yeah you know i mean whereas like joanna newsom trying to tell you this the end Spencer Krug is trying to tell you this story, mm-hmm. but doing it by being floral and poetic. And the, the, yeah. So I, we're going to put like the, Tom Petty is definitely more in like a, the storyteller tradition, literal, kind literal of like Bob Dylan kind of side of things. Yeah. And we have, uh, Joanna Newsom, uh, Kate Bush yeah. and, uh, Spencer Krug over on this side where more, um, kind of, free associate kind of like well at least using like more what metaphor and poetic yeah, devices yeah, like yeah. actual poetic devices as opposed to just you know story like narrative storytelling yeah. like pr- like putting prose to verse like yeah uh, what tom petty would do which both things are great and i love tom yeah. petty don't get me wrong well, you um, know who else the nationals i would put them in that yeah. in the tom petty side like the national deal yeah like that um he gets a little uh, yeah, uh, I'm a birthday candle in a circle of black girls. No, that's pretty direct. I think I know what that means. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, <laughs> but uh, Spencer Krug, compared to Joanna Newsom, yeah. like he goes off into more of the dream spaces. Yeah, yeah. Where it's more fugue state. And then he, what he does is he grounds it in a very strong individual image. Yeah. Uh, with Silver Moons, it's the idea of like these dreamlike ideas of... Uh, 
like passing on the torch, but also like tell the new kids where I hid the wine. There's like this literal thing that you can kind of grab onto in order to bring the bring that message back home. Yeah. And something that I think he excels at very well when he's maybe a little bit better on the Wolf Parade albums. Yeah. But uh, here when yeah, he's it's, a, it's weird because like sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you. Um but like it's weird because like his lyric like I I found the lyrics on this album and like I've I've listened to a couple of these because it's one of those things like when Paul and I do say this to everybody, but like when somebody recommends that I listen to something, I do go and listen to it, even if my preferences are what they are. Um, and like, I really loved that Wolf Parade record. And I didn't find it as obtuse a listen as anything that he did a Sunset Rubdown. Mm-hmm. Like, I always was like listening to these and just being like, I don't, I don't know. I, it just didn't click with me. That, you know what I mean? That's so, fair. and maybe yeah. that's just like my limitation or my personal preference or whatever. Mm-hmm. But like, it's, it's, it's just like, I love that Wolf Parade record. And I found that, like, even as they went forward, it became much more of a Spencer Krug kind of thing. Where it's like he in the, um, and the, the, I'm sorry, I wish Tim was here, but there's like very much like a, um, like a Weezer thing where like one of the, like that first album is like that perfect blend of Matt Sharp and Rivers working together. Mm-hmm. And then like you can tell somebody took the fucking reins and ran ahead. Mm-hmm. And it's like the other guy gets left behind. But the balance between those two guys is what made that first record great yeah and i think wolf parade something very similarly where it's like the balance between those two guys is what made that first record great and as you go forward and like spencer takes over more creative control over everything or like reverse takes over more creative control or like trail of dead um conrad 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 keely like taking more creative control away from like jason reese yeah that's where you start to see it's not source tags and codes anymore it's not the blue album anymore it's not um, it's not apologies. apologies to the queen mary right like you right. don't yeah I, I, I think that's kind of what happened with them and i'm like spencer krug is an interesting musician like an interesting talent mm-hmm. but i don't i think i find it better when he's grounded mm. a little bit more and to me i agree but i i the i his solo work speaks to me a lot um because of um, my ability to, because uh, a lot of the times I, when I'm listening to music, my uh, my brain can't stop, and like there, there's always this. Um, yeah, that's like that's our our Wolf Family curse, though. I think yeah, none of us. I think none of us have that. And with Spencer Krug, um, even though my brain isn't stopping, the imagery that he uses and um, creates enough beauty, enough of a puzzle, enough of a an an image, even if it's an image that might seem like strikingly meant to discomfort you still makes me part of that world while I'm listening to it. Yeah. And Sunset so, so Rubdown has always had this ability to draw me in. Uh, and it it's on this album, I think that on, on a particular song that it was perfected. And okay. so I'll move on to my favorite song from yeah. this album, which is uh, you go on ahead, trumpet, trumpet, toot, toot, yeah. toot. Um, and you go on ahead. It's probably got one of my favorite visual images in a lyric ever, where um, the whole idea is like the there are two um, people, and the other one, one of them says, "You go on ahead. I want to follow you for a while." And just this idea of them walking in tandem, but one kind of like watching the other walk forward and he says i'd like to white watch the white flash of your heels as they take turns walking in the desert yeah and it's just this like beautiful image of 
what that love needed to be in that moment for it to survive. Yeah. And I was so taken aback by it the first time I heard it. I had that song on repeat for God knows how long uh, while I was in university writing papers, just like, okay, I'll re- listen to it again. I could listen to the whole album and I did. I, I would, but I would stop on this song every I single have, I time. I have songs like that. Um, when I first uh, got into, and I might cut this cause it's fucking totally tangential, but like when mm-hmm. I first got back into the Deftones, mm-hmm. Um, you know that song Kim Dracula that yeah. I was going on about? Yeah. Like I was just diving through their whole discography and I I still to this day do not know why in before Koinoyo Can came out, I had listened to Diamond Eyes and I saw them on that tour where Oof. they played with Mastodon and stuff like that. Yeah. But I just was like, meh, whatever. Like they're the Deftones. And something I don't know if it was like and this will this I'll definitely cut out. Oh fuck it, whatever. I don't really care. But like yeah. we were like doing a band practice and I was I, somebody complained about what I was listening to because like, as they were coming in, I'd be I'd be warming up and practicing, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody came in and I had Deftones on. I think I was listening to Knife Party, right? And yeah. it was like spiteful almost at that point. Yeah. So I had it on. And I was playing along, to, like, just tapping out the rhythm and stuff like that. And somebody was like, "Oh, this is really heavy." Blah blah blah. You can guess. Everybody who knows us will be able to guess who I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So that's fine. Um, there's the lead singer in this band, and I just kind of like deep for some reason, just like really started to drift really hard into the hard rock almost out of spite because mm-hmm. of the way he talked about it and i got back into the deftones and when i was listening to their discography i was be like i got stuck on kim dracula mm-hmm. and was like listening to the rest of the stuff but it just kept being like fucking i love this fucking song i need to listen to it i probably listened to it on repeat for fucking three weeks mm-hmm. it is probably my most played song on drums in the past three years yeah and if I go back and look at like my most played in iTunes, Kim Dracula is probably in the same running as like Porch and Weapon. Mm, okay, For, yeah. Like it's just that many times where I'll just like, mm-hmm. I need to go back to this song. Because I yeah. just love that fucking riff. And it's, I don't know, it's it's weird how like that one song will just catch you. Yeah. Every once in a while and you'll be like, fuck, that is like the goddamn, like this is, and that's the thing. Like to me, that's the Deftones to me is Kim Dracula. Yeah. Nobody else it's on their least highly regarded song like record it is never a single but every once in a while you catch somebody like what's your favorite song by the deftones and like one person in that like 75 replies on that reddit thread will be like kim dracula and you'll see the like 20 upvotes on it because there's yeah. a bunch of us that are like yeah, yeah. fuck yeah kim yeah. dracula so i totally get where you're coming from with that sunset rubdown song because yeah. it's just like there is probably there's always that one song yeah there's it's definitely not their most famous song and it was not like but for me uh when it was played live because i saw them uh perform yeah that's the best when they pull that kind because that's what happened this past like on the gore tour yeah they whipped kim dracula out all of a sudden and i was just like i literally i cried the first time they played it Mm. because i was just like i never thought i was gonna hear this song ever again live and they started i saw them three times on that tour yeah or four times on that tour whatever um i've seen them a lot the last couple of years for some reason <laughs> Can't imagine. Played it two out of the three times i've seen them in the last year yeah. or two and i'm like oh fuck i love this song. that's awesome that's awesome yeah so um let's move along then um mm-hmm. since we both tangented like crazy yep uh and move into your properly this time number 15 album number 15 album is perfume genius's too bright uh perfume genius is a uh queer artist he's a gay man who um 
has an amazing Twitter, <laughs> but is uh, is well known in uh, kind of indie singer songwriter circles because he started off as like just singing a lot about his about trauma in general and going through like he is uh, an ex drug addict. He had a seriously messed up childhood and uh, he sang about it with a level of frankness that made people very uncomfortable. Like just him and a very simple piano melody and talking about his, uh, his teacher who uh, sexually assaulted him while they had they smoked drugs and listened to joy division in his car kind of thing it's like a it's it was brutally honest and it was honest to the point where people were like we have to take notice um but it was fantastically beautiful in its weird dreamy frankness um and over the course of uh his albums he now has four albums the one that i've selected is his third album uh his it's kind of crystallized into making himself more whole as a person. And it's been a really interesting thing to watch his evolution from the beginning, his first album learning to his la- the album that was released this year called no shape, um, which is a wonderful album. And it was very difficult for me to choose which perfume genius album I wanted to talk about. Cause I didn't want to cheap out and talk about like same artist multiple times in my top 20 could have, but I chose Too Bright because this is... Well, you're the one who gave me shit and said I could do that. No. I would, I mean, in, this, in the top 10, like in one 10 span. Oh, okay. You know, right. like on oh, the yeah. same episode. So, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Sorry. So, we were breaking them up in the five. I keep forgetting we're doing you like in chunks of 10. Yeah. Right. So um, this album, Too Bright, is where things start to... Um, the trauma starts to self-actualize into a lot of anger... And but also a lot of self determination, um, and he really like solidifies his identity um, through his music, um, and it's dark and it refers a lot to um, very disturbing sci fi imagery. Um, and if you watch any of his videos for this album cycle, they are v- serious head trips and very disturbing. But this songwriting um, was a little bit more on the the glam rock end of things. This this album is a very great example of like a coming out album or a queer pride anthem while still be being incredibly personal and self-aware of it, where its origins are. Yeah. Yeah. It's got a very like something about tinkly like twee almost that kind of side to it. Yeah, which is that's a holdover There's, from his first two and albums. I think that's something. I think my my overall takeaway a lot of the time, and this is like, this is going to sound like criticism, but maybe it's not, or maybe it's just like something I've noticed when I when I pick your albums. You have a really big fondness for really weirdly bleak lyrical topics mm-hmm. that are juxtaposed to almost, I'll say, jovial mm-hmm. musical pieces, mm-hmm. and I find that sometimes that like that. And I, I understand your preference for that, mm-hmm. but I find that like when musicians lean on that too much, it's almost like a crutch. It's like, mm. it's, I don't know, it's a weird, it's like maybe it's a personal preference thing. Right. Whereas like if you're going to be dour yeah. in your lyrical content, yeah, 
where it's almost like you're getting into like because some of the topics he talks about are like bordering on like if you want to go there's a really weird thing on tv tropes you may have seen like the most scale of hardness mm-hmm. and there's like the most scale of lyrical hardness mm-hmm. whereas you start getting into like the high levels it starts getting into like the weird like cannibal corpsey like that kind mm-hmm. of stuff yeah or it's difficult to listen to but like the one that always throws me is that like a, a band that has a very high level of lyrical hardness is alice in chains mm-hmm. whereas you wouldn't think they're necessarily like super fucking hard mm-hmm. it's so bleak and oppressive yeah but the music matches that you yeah know what i mean like their musical level would probably be maybe a couple levels lower than that yeah but it's like his musical level would be like in terms of hardness like a two yeah and like his level of lyrical bleakness would then be like a seven or eight and that but that which is really weird to me and but that's the thing is that one of the things that maybe differentiates us as music fans is that the it's probably not a maybe <laughs> it's, yeah but it's but in the, that idea that the heart like concept of hardness and hardness scales that these things are easily mapped and measured i yeah, don't buy into I, that i don't, so I, don't I don't necessarily agree with it either i'm just talking about like it's just kind yeah. of like a an easy way to describe like right how how typically people think of music yeah, and yeah, it's, yeah. Like, it's like i would expect these lyrics to be more like i want to hold your hand given right. like the sound of the music yeah and i find that disparity because it's so prevalent in what you listen to yeah i'm i i find it a weird thing that you like yeah like, i don't know if it's just it's not like i have a negative or positive thing to say about it yeah but it's just something that like it's a pattern i notice with you it's like they have these really almost everything's danceable almost or beautiful yeah, or yeah. beautiful yeah but like the lyrics tend to be kind of gr- like grief stricken right. all the time you know what i mean but that w- one of the things which i guess when i look at it is your surface you and your inside you maybe kind of like, yeah, maybe, yeah. yeah in conflict whereas like maybe me my inside me and my outside me are more like in tune in tune in terms of like in terms of how people perceive what yeah. like like well, how people I mean, are supposed you, to express anger how your friends how your friends like your distant friends would see you yeah would be like that surfacey yeah poppy kind of side yeah but like i know you're my brother so i know you yeah and like i know you got some angst yeah whereas like everybody knows i've got angst just because that's just part of my personality yeah and I wear it on my sleeve more. I think this this parlays perfectly into this particular album because yeah. this is talking about like how people and men in particular express their rage and how gay men our um our pop um sensibility tends to be more open because we uh, absorb a lot more uh, like feminine music what would be considered traditionally feminine music. And so but when you look at um that idea of dissonance between um, this beauty and this grief, it's been around forever. If you think about um, Motown, the crystals, it, it, it hit me and it yeah, felt like a kiss yeah, and true. stuff like that. Yeah. That's always been around. It's just that. Um, well, I guess so, yeah. Even that like last kiss song, right? Like, yeah. It's pretty bleak. But. Yeah. It's ca- like the idea of like grief being couched in beauty is something that I think um, I glom onto a lot. And yeah. I, and it, it, I think it, it does have something to do with like, um, there should be a way to express grief in a beautiful way. One of the reasons I love Joanna Newsom so much is because East expresses her grief about a loss in a beautiful way. Yeah. Um, and I like I love hard music, but my favorite Tool song is one of their most melodic. It would be Stink Fist, um, because it has a very Still, melodic. Like it's a crunchy fucking yeah, song. Yeah, though. right. It like is. It's arguably one of their heavier. Well, maybe not their heaviest song. Yeah. It's not Ticks and Leeches or anything like that. Yeah, but, but to still... me, it has a uh, Maynard's most beautiful vocal melody on, uh, like 
even up there with a, a lot of his A Perfect Circle stuff, where he's singing finger, fingers deep within the border. I love that cadence. I love that that delivery on that. It's beautiful. Yeah, but he's still got like a massive shouty part on it. Oh, yeah. Like, and the, I love uh, the shouty part, too. Because like the I'm still breathing, I think, is the, the lyric. Yeah. And Perfume Genius um, has a lot of that on this album. Like the, the, the album centerpieces, the ones that really stuck out to a lot of people, um, have you, the just searing anger kind of couched, not couched, but actually amplified by the glam rock side of what he does. Um, and uh, one of the songs that is more straight up dystopian and freaky is Grid, um, the one where he says... Um, I think this is the song that I like the best on the album. Yeah, sure where there's the screaming part at the end where yeah. I know you worry, baby, sometimes. Yeah. Maybe, baby, you were right. Yeah. Um, that... Uh, like it is so bleakly accepting of the the flaws and failures of a person while still and just cynical to the point of like why even bother it's bleak as hell yeah but it it still transcends um that one is probably more straightforward dark um but then i'm going to talk about my the the song that was the the lead single and probably the most talked about song on the album was Queen. And this was, this is a gay power anthem. If there ever was one, it's like, it's, uh, it speaks to, um, the disgust that people have with homosexuality while still just rising above and embracing that. Like he talks about the disfiguration of bodies and how like our skin is chapped and bleeding, but, like I'm a queen, and it's yes, powerful. Captain Bleeding makes me think Cannibal Corpse. Yeah, it's it, his imagery has always, always, always been rough to get through. Yeah. But he's always presented it in a way that has made it not just, not palatable, but uh, it, so well, you can easier, listen to it. So you can process. Like you can almost say it's easier to ignore at that point. That's that might be true, but if you're really diving into it, it yeah. helps you process it in a way. Listen, how many people listen to the lyrics these days? Though you know what I mean. Yeah. So. Well, I definitely I think that there, there's something true to be said about that for sure. But it's the, on this album that I would argue that it was harder for that to be ignored because he, sure. it was not that tinkling that you were talking about that was so prominent on his first two albums. Mm-hmm. Um, really fell by the wayside on this album, okay. and he went full bore. And I think that Queen is an excellent representation of like just upfront guitar riffs. Um, the imagery would like would match that hardness scale in a more direct way. Yeah, yeah. and while still speaking to themes of masculinity and femininity, while still being proud of that queerness that he represents. Fair enough. Awesome. Um, let's keep this moving along. Otherwise we're going to be into a three hour episode here. Really? Okay. No, no, not really, but okay. we're get we're, we're above one six, one seventeen. Okay. We'll, we'll keep it tight. I got some, we got some, I got, I'll have some cutting to do, but that's, yeah. that's fine. Um, okay. So your number 14, 14. Yes. It's Robin's body talk. Robin was a one of the uh, many blondes that came out of the 90s pop scene, and she was very famous for the songs uh, Show Me Love and Do You Know What It Takes to Love Me? And she disappeared for 10 years. And then she came back. Swedish, eh? She is a Swedish pop star. 
And she came back in 2005 with her um, self-titled album, and it really made people pay attention to her again as a pop star. She opened, she started her own label and did all of her own songwriting, which is something she always kind of did, um, or she was, she was collaborative, but she is a pop star in her own right and pop singer-songwriter. And um, so when people started paying attention more to um, her, like this re- imagined robin um a few years later she did this thing where she started this body talk album cycle she released body talk part one which is an ep that had a certain number of songs and then body talk part two had a certain number of songs and then she turned body talk into an album with new songs and a combination of parts of body talk part one and part two and she turned into a full-fledged Neo disco superstar and um, has with this album solidified herself as a gay icon as well as just a pop behemoth. She, um, the, the first single from the Body Talk album cycle was um, Dancing on My Own. And you can, if you ask any gay man from Toronto to like, start singing that they can do it no problem dancing on my own is pretty much like one of those songs that gets played at the end of any dance night where you know you're it's almost it's time to hook up but you're all by yourself kind of thing um one of the reasons i people love this out though Hmm? she's straight yeah that never mattered there's difference between gay and gay icon neil patrick harris is not a gay icon he's just gay Okay, but Judy Garland is a gay icon. Yeah, but not gay. But not gay. If you get it's it's kind of a fine line. Um, you know, you maybe maybe offline you can walk me through that distinction because I, yeah. I, I I I'm now kind of I'm trying to process it and it's not it, making it entirely a lot of sense to me. But it does not compute. Oh, we'll get there. It's more, it's more just like the why. I mean, I guess like in Judy Garland time, you wouldn't necessarily have somebody to glom onto that is identifiably gay because yeah. nobody would identify as gay back then. But like, right. Now you do. Yeah. But Neil Patrick Harris um, is most famous for playing the like straightest guy yeah, ever. The, the giant bro. All right. That's true. That's true. Yeah. yeah. Especially like, and that was like, like his career renaissance came around because he was playing back to back, played like the broiest character, like playing yeah. himself in Harold, Harold and Kumar, Kumar and then playing Barney on uh, How I Met Your Mother. Yeah. And doing a full 180 later on and doing uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch on Broadway. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but, and... So, but he's not like a gay icon. Not really. Not okay. not in the way that Robin is. I thought you guys would like love him for that. Well, and some people do. Yeah. Some people say that he like gets like a little bit Uncle Tom. And like... Oh, okay. That's okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So I, I, I understand. Yeah. So it's uh that that but that's a topic for another time. I I'm not expressing any particular opinion on this subject whatsoever. <laughs> just as a disclaimer, FYI. I'm just, cu- I'm just curious because like the distinction is is interesting to me. Yeah. But Robin has innumerable gay fans, and one of the reasons for that is she's well, they d- must be innumerable somehow. Well. <laughs> The idea is that she sings wistful dance music that you dance to alone in your building because you're alone. And every, like, there's, I doubt that there's a gay man in my age group or or older that hasn't felt that um, 
yeah. ostracism, isolationism, yeah. because of this idea that it's there's just the politics of gay life feels like a Robin song. Yeah, <laughs> and she, that loneliness on the dance floor, um, this where you're performing and dancing, but you're just so alone, is like a good, strong symbol of what it's like. And um, Robin has unapologetically uh, just a- acknowledged her gay fan base and really caters to us in, to an extent. Yeah. Um, while still, she she sings pretty heteronormative songs. Like she's talking about, she's singing to a male other in her songs and usually to a male other and his girlfriend. <laughs> um, I'm in the corner watching you kiss her that kind of thing so there is definitely like and that's more of a maybe a pop pop thing mm-hmm. that is a a pop trope that's very prevalent yeah. these days yeah or maybe just, she maybe wasn't as prop maybe it was before i just don't notice because i don't listen to a lot of pop music yeah or like i'm not i don't steep myself in pop music yeah. in that way well i remember talking a little bit about this during uh when i was talking about the Aaliyah album on my last yeah, list yeah, yeah. where she really she had that one song where she like was the side chick and she was proud of it and that was like yeah. that was pretty revolutionary for like what uh and the way that she presented that whereas robin very much steeps herself in the drama of the other but still has uh some songs like my favorite song on this album where she is the other woman, but it's uh, a little bit more complicated than that. Yeah. Um, and so I guess, I guess I'll just get into it. Uh, Call your girlfriend is the song that I chose for the quintessential Robin song. It was going to be dancing on my own because it's still probably the most popular on this album, but call your girlfriend is, um, just, it's a song where Robin is telling her ob- the object of her affection to uh, call his girlfriend and end the relationship, but don't tell her that I'm so much better than she is and I'm doing everything right. And it's this really um, like backhanded, empathetic song while still being super danceable. Don't tell her how I'm, uh, I give you something that you never even knew you missed kind of stuff. Um, it's like, the the person that is singing this is the kind of person I would think is borderline sociopathic, but the way that Robin sings it is so romantic and the song itself just is this big electronica disco swell and you can't help but dance to it. It's phenomenal. So she's always been able to like convey a lot of uh, pathos through her voice and delivery and she builds these songs that crescendo so perfectly. That every time you're on a dance floor dancing to a Robin song, you know you're going to hit that that dance high every single time. Nice. Yeah. All right. So let's move along. Um, this will be number... Why, why can't... My brain just won't just do this. Just add a one in front. Like, one, two, three, add a one in front of it. <laughs> my brain just won't... Off, like, I'm looking at it. I'm like, I don't know. Number 13. Number 13. So go ahead. Is uh, Night Bugs by Sarah Sleen. This one surprised me from you, oddly enough, because like it's a chick with a piano. Yeah, (laughs) she's um, listenable. (laughs) (laughs) So is Fiona, and okay, fair enough. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, I, I maybe I'm, I'm because I. It's been such a long time since we really looked at your first one. Mm -hmm. I didn't. I like. I, I'm not making the same kind of like. Yeah. To be fair, though, the Fiona Apple that uh, album that I chose was hard to listen to. Too. Well, well, not hard to listen to, but it's like. 
It's jazzy and freeform. It requires a little bit more like process, yeah, to listen to. Whereas the Sarah Sleen album is like, Ooh, it's so it's so good. It's so it is very good. Yeah. and like I like Sarah Sleen, so like that was yeah. It was kind of I was like, oh wait, a female artist that I like. Why is Paul talking about her? Sarah Sleen is a Canadian uh, artist who is probably just as bookish as a lot of the other artists that I listen to. In fact, probably more so in some ways because she wears it on her sleeve very much, but she's a very economical and has a great pop sensibility. And she, but while still really um, leaning on uh, forms of the past, especially the cabaret. If you listen to this album, you will, the Brechtian cabaret feelings will be washing over you the entire time you're listening to it. Okay. Um, it's got. I was never. I well, actually, you know what? I was like, that doesn't. That's not really right. But like, and we were talking about. We were talking about seriously and offline before we start, sat down and record this. Like, I went to pick Paul, Paul up and Bob. We were driving back, so we were talking about his list, and um, I was struggling to remember who seriously had worked with before she kind of hit it big. And now you're saying cabaret, and I'm like, okay, now I understand Hoxley Workman where mm-hmm. that fits in. Yeah, because she had worked with Hoxley Workman on the um. The Delicious Wolves record. Yeah. So that it lines up. Yeah. So. Yeah. She. Because uh, that's when somebody says cabaret, like in pop music, my first. My, Poxy's who pops into my fucking head. You know I mean? Poxy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Her. I think her style, especially the way that she plays the piano, is very cabaret. It's very like playing in a dark jazz club. Yeah. And, that, and see, like, cab. <sighs> See, cabaret to me means more, I think, more like Moulin Rouge. Okay. Whereas, like, this is more like she's sitting by herself in the corner of a jazz club. Yeah. Kind of. And for not, me... Not even a jazz club, just a club. Yeah. And you for me, I mean? like, when I think cabaret, I think cabaret, yeah. like Liza Minnelli. Yeah, fair enough. And, like, because Moulin Rouge was Baz Luhrmann's, like, thing. Um, I don't want to get into that. Yeah. But, um, I... Th- was he the same guy who directed... Romeo and Juliet. Yes. Okay. And Great so, Gatsby. Like, there's a uh, there's a a tonal through line between those. Maybe not through Gatsby, but through. Those oh, two definitely. Movies, it's especially. it's called the the idea of stylism. Yeah. He he loves it. But um, Sirisline um is uh just she's a, a chick with a piano, but yeah. she's also incredibly bright, and she has some of her lyrics are absolutely phenomenal. Um, she's a great performer live. I saw her live multiple times. Yeah. Uh, and the tinier the theater, the better. She is so personable and funny. I, I seem to remember seeing her at that um, the little theater in Brock mm-hmm. one time. She did play that. I'm not she sure did, if we went together, but... I don't think so. I saw her play at uh, McMaster University at their theater. Okay. Um, and I saw her play at the Grape and Wine Festival in St. Catharines. Yeah, well, I think we went to that show. Together. Yeah. Well, we were at that show. We were at that show. And either way, she has always... She's got great stage banter, but her songs are incredibly beautiful. They feel like they should be the soundtrack to like um, Les Miserables or like some disenfranchised. That kind of has its own soundtrack. So. Yeah, I, but I'm talking about like uh, the the novel, not the musical itself. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, there are. Um, she definitely creates a character in every single one of her songs, um, and some of her songs veer more towards like. Angry Sarah McLaughlin. Some of them veer more towards McLaughlin. That's almost a uh, 
like an oxymoron yeah like a contradiction in terms a little bit but when i think about it like um it makes sense because i like she she would be the the middle ground like if you're going to take pick like canadian songstresses or whatever mm-hmm. like she would be the middle ground to me between like the overly lilith fair sarah mclaughlin like mm-hmm. everything is bokeh and like radiant light mm-hmm. and you know flower dresses in yeah. like fields of grass and stuff like that yeah. that would be the sir mclaughlin image versus yeah. like the holly mcnarland like yeah scummy playing in a club like in a shitty matthew good video like that yeah. kind of like in an alley especially that yeah. looks like somebody tied off a condom like over there like yeah yeah like, in the, like she i feel like sarah Sleen fits in between those two yeah very cleanly and she de- because she definitely talked about like the the grime of the streets but like her music is so pristinely beautiful um that it 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 feels drama kid but not in a bad way yeah um the first song off the album for example would be elliot which is a, a song about t.s elliot the poet um and it paints this picture of, of like um i don't know like victorian alleys like cold london streets or something like yeah. that where it's well, desolate and cold and she is yeah. from vancouver that would make sense because yeah. that, that rainy kind of I yeah think she's i think she's a west coast kid yeah right i'm not i'm not sure um well you keep talking and i'll look it up she's uh she creates really strong images she's good at a strong narrative as well the two songs that have like explicit storylines to them like duncan and book smart street stupid are just like really good story songs more in the vein of the tom petty style than the super imagery one where she does lean on imagery on songs like elliot i always forget how stunning she is too oh yeah she is beautiful that is there is there is that's like my 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 straight male male gaze bullshit yeah interfering with your list but but uh, yeah a a picture of her popped on i was like oh fuck i forgot how hot she is but uh, but her voice She from Pickering, Ontario. Born in Pickering. Oh, okay. Well, I don't know if she lives there still, or like, if, like she's still kind of like Toronto native. It doesn't say anything, but like, mm-hmm. it's, it is born in Pickering, Ontario. Oh, well, there you go. I guess. I, mean, I guess if you have the the like, if you're in Canada and you have the choice to live wherever you want, you can live wherever you want. Yeah, kind of thing. Especially if you're a, a musician who that that's what you do for a living. Yeah, but I guess. Um, and this is a total tangent, but like I know, like because Toronto is kind of like the center of the Canadian music universe, mm-hmm. that like even West Coast acts tend to center their business operations in Toronto. And I only know this because of how very closely I follow Matthew Good's mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like his whole backing band is from Ontario, right? Right. And mm-hmm. like when he does his tour pre-launch, like we're um, we're like eight days from Matthew Good's new album coming out when we record this it comes out on October 20th mm-hmm. and he's doing an event on the 16th in Toronto with Alan Cross so like he's probably in Ontario now even though he yeah. is like lives in Coquitlam and or Vancouver or whatever yeah and like that's what like, he's known as a west coast guy yeah I guess he's spending like must be spending six months out of the year yeah in Toronto so I'm assuming most Canadian artists that are like mm-hmm. actively producing still yeah. probably spend like split their time like Oh, if you're Matthew Good from Vancouver, you're spending six months in Toronto, like recording, practicing with your band. So I'm assuming Sarah Sleen would be probably something very similar. Where probably. Like, um, that being said, and though, like up north, wherever the fuck Hoxie Workman hides now, like I think he's got some like farmland or some shit like that north of Barrie, yeah. some ridiculous things. So. And, and though, as and as much as like, yeah, she, 
She's obviously most famous in Canada, from what I understand. Yeah, but yeah. she doesn't strike me as a particularly like Canadian artist in the way that Matthew Good or the Tea Party or Sarah McLaughlin even or Alanis Morissette, because her um her musical influences are strongly European and not really rock based, except f- and and the pop aspect of her stuff is um more classical um i would say except with the exception of one song on this album called wait which gives me more fiona sarah mclaughlin vibes yeah still really good though by the way i'm not saying that in I a think that, disparaging but I think way that is is um and this may be a bigger conversation we can have at some other time like mm-hmm. maybe you have to be involved with our uh picking it like tim wants to do like definitive canadian artists which is just gonna turn to a fucking fight yeah it is um but like i think there's something to be said about the lack of identity in Canadian artists. Mm-hmm. Whereas like there are some artists that like lean very heavily into Canadiana mm-hmm. and, and then there are some who do not, but are still just because they're from here, they're Canadian artists. Mm-hmm. I think the tea parties like that. Mm. Whereas like, I wouldn't, if you just played them to me and then tell me who they were, be like, where are they from? Like, yeah. I don't fucking know. Is this a doors cover? Band? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> well, I, well, yeah. Maybe. Um, but like, I, I don't necessarily think you would be able to say like, like from the lyrical content or from whatever, like Matthew Goods from Vancouver, right? Yeah, I don't but think, he was definitely part of a particular movement. He, in, was, from, he was part of a scene, absolutely. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. just saying, like, if you played it, like, like remo- stripped him of like his identity, mm-hmm. and we're just like, where's this from? Just from listening to the music, you're yeah. gonna be like, oh, he's Canadian. Yeah, that's you know, true. Whereas, like, if you listen to like the tragically hip stuff, you'd be like, they talk about a lot of weird shit, and if you look it up, it's very blatantly Canadian, Canadian stuff, yeah. right? Where, like that comes up, and I think Sarah Sleen falls into more of that like Matthew Good side, where yeah. you're like. Yeah, it's fine. But like, so I, so saying she doesn't sound Canadian is just kind of yeah. like, I know what's what Canadian sound like. like yeah, I, get, I know like, what you mean. Yeah. But for me, it was just yeah. being fucking shitty and like dissembling. But like, yeah, it, at the same it, time, it's it, still like, yeah, she was, but she was like a piano playing band who very clearly must be Canadian because, yeah, yeah, that's, but they're not. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Um, like I just I I was listening to this record yesterday and like out of this um Friends Ferdinand I love and I love that album a lot. Yeah. So like that that was probably what but like out of this one, this would be like the one that I'd be like, I love this record the best mm-hmm. out of this this ten, this group of ten. Yeah. And it's hard to say between that and Friends Ferdinand, but this is the one that I was like, this is more maybe surprisingly to everybody, but this is more my style. Yeah. Um because I don't like sit there and broadcast it on the podcast as much, but like I do like that like singer songwritery kind of like girl with the piano kind of thing yeah. i don't know why i think yeah. it's maybe because i think it's hot but like at the same time but it's like, pretty and it she, is it's pretty and it's good like she's she's an excellent songwriter yeah. and i she's an awesome like i love her voice i have a hard time describing her voice because it is it can be it's a little um, it's almost generic mm. in some ways but in other ways, it's like the way she uses it is not. You know mm. what I mean? Like she plays with it a little bit. Yeah, her fr- the phrasing of yeah. her musical sentence is very, uh, very distinct. Yeah. Um, and but her voice is just like so naturally like big soprano-y big yeah. kind of, of sound, right? Like it's it's really good. Yeah. So Christy, if you ever listen to this episode, which you probably won't, but um, this would be the one that I would suggest out of all of Paul's picks you go listen to. I think this would be the one. For Christy, like picking one of mine, I mean, like Christy, this is the one you should go listen yeah, to. Okay, fair enough. Because she hates everything I like. Yeah. Um, especially music wise. Yeah. So, so like, try this. Yeah. Yeah, I think this would be the one that like this would be the one that I'd be like Christy would like this best. Actually, though, to be fair, of Montreal is probably yeah. 
So right up her fucking alley too. The song that I would recommend for this album would be the main single off of it, which was one of the songs that she said that she had written the earliest in her career. It would be Sweet Ones, yeah. which is um still quite the bop in my opinion. Like you know, quite the bop. Fifteen years out, I yeah. still think that it's just it's a great pop song. It has like this weird imagery, but still has like the um those wicked harmonies on it and her voice just soars it is and it's a very economical song i think almost straight up at like three minutes it's just it from out the gate if that piano uh piano melody just grabs onto you so sweet ones check it out this album fantastic cool okay um all right so let's move along we'll be at number 12 now number 12 is of Montreal, of Montreal's hissing fauna, are you the destroyer? Now, this is of Montreal is not of Montreal. They are a band from Athens, Georgia, and they are. Um, so shout out to Tim, who's yeah. also living in Georgia. in Georgia, and also that means they are uh, townmates with REM. Hmm. Correct. So yeah, which I heard when I was listening to this, I was like, "Why am I hearing REM?" Mm-hmm. I haven't listened to Montreal. Montreal is one of those bands that, like, when we were in university together, mm-hmm. like was like in the ether yeah right yeah. and like i remember listening to them and being like there's something about this that i like and there's something about this that's not my style and it's definitely like the rem-ness of it is where i'm like yeah this is my shit yeah but there is um this is a band that i want to like more than i actually do I have lots because of those. yeah of those. i really love this album obviously it's in my yeah. top 12 it's i think this this is considered to be their finest this, work yeah this is the one that like when, when i i was actually surprised that you had picked this one because this is if you somebody was like picking of montreal album this is the album that i would have picked mm-hmm. as a casual kind of like dabbler yeah. in that scene yeah whereas i expected you to be more like i'm gonna pick the really obtuse indie one like i have a uh, like a lot of issues with um kevin barnes's particular form of songwriting um on the album following this one it, he just couldn't settle on any ideas long enough yeah. and it was just the schizophrenic album that i hate listening to it's called Fair skeletal enough. lamping but this one when he doubled down on his ideas they were the good ideas of the album <laughs> like um that uh the past is a grotesque animal this sprawling song of 16 like 16 minutes of like just being a basket case in a club and not sure what and just this these moments of indecision uh this is a really cool album because it is a concept album um it starts off um as like kevin i think it's the idea is that kevin barnes has two personalities he's like the the main kind of artsy uh singer songwriter and then his kind of transgendered identity in the second half georgie fruit um yeah, this is totally like news to me yeah and i don't and the past is a grotesque animal is like they're the switching point in the album so there's like a clear divide between those two that okay. song so you can see a yeah, stylistic guess, yeah that flip. makes sense like there is definitely like a uh like it's like almost a side a side b kind of flip yeah 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 and the side the side b is more like bouncy and irreverent not to, not to, belab- not to belabor that fucking uh yeah that the lp right? yeah yeah but um I, I'm a big lover of the side A of this album again, yes. but the side B, I think it has a lot you're, of charm. You're, I think I feel like if you were going to like brand us that way, mm-hmm. you're more side A, whereas I'm more side B. That is true. I, I, I think that's a I, fair I, assessment. I like, I like that jammy kind of like uh, 
this is a tangent. I can cut this out again, but like yeah. we, were, we were sitting around chatting this week, and I was listening to that weird playlist that Matt had put up, like mm-hmm. Matthew Good had put up. There was all his off, like jazzy kind of side stuff. Yeah, that, that thing, that thing that you put that you made me listen to. Yeah, I remember. Made you listen to? Oh, you didn't like that? It was. It wasn't bad, but you, you, I think you hit the nail on the head when we were listening to that. That that's music that would like fade into the background at a jazz club or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And it was like for me, I if I'm listening to music like and I turn my attention to it, I want it. I want there to be like a hook, and well, I want it hooks to, in there. You just have to listen to it. Yeah. Anyway, for, for me, yeah, I, but I'm definitely more of a side A person, and um, the both sides of this album are catchy, but for me, the the kind of navel gazing singer songwriter working my issues out side A on this album is a lot more fascinating to me than the weirdness of the the side B. But I love this album because of its sound. It's that synth pop that was uh, in vogue at the time, but done to uh, a done in a way that felt- there's still like instrumentation to it though. Absolutely, like there's like, there's like a band there. It's just that it's. This is where, like, I, I, this is like where synth stuff doesn't bother me. Yeah. Like, where it's layered on top of a live band. Yeah. It's not I'm, the only, it's not just like we built all of this in Pro Tools or what have you, Garage yeah. Band, and then just put a vocal track and then auto tune the shit out of it over top. Like, that yeah. does, ha- does nothing for me. Like, appeals to me to like zero sum. Yeah. Whereas this, I'm like, oh, I understand. Yeah. Like, I understand that thing because, like, all my bands do that kind of stuff. You yeah. Know what I mean? But it, it starts with the, the live performance of mm-hmm. it and then gets played to afterwards which i find more interesting right. and i think that as a band like of montreal has been a lot more workmanlike and always had that a more rock rem aesthetic yeah that but still yeah, i think it'd be hard to like be from athens and not have that like that association well just that <sighs> influence yeah, I guess the influence, like that, like that scene, kind of like culture. Mm-hmm. I guess maybe culture is the word, like the word I'm looking for. Yeah, like that because, like, what would if you were from Athens, and you, like what band, like a local band to look up to? You have REM's it. I mean, yeah, like Atlanta. Much. I guess you have Mastodon in Atlanta, it, but like the B52s from Athens, Georgia, as well. You know, if you want to talk about a band that's like consistently outputting stuff that was of good quality, ah. Uh. The B-52s may not be what you're looking at. You know what Rome I mean? Rome if you want to. Baby. Yeah, but good song. <laughs> I know. <laughs> does not mean you're like a workman like... That's you know true. I mean? yeah. Versus R.E.M. who put out like fucking... For what? Like 15 albums before they called it quits? Like they were like every two years to probably. varying degrees of quality, but well, yes, yeah, I agree. Absolutely, but they're always outputting. Yes, that's true. And like uh, what always ends up happening with R.E.M., mm-hmm. and this is a total tangent again, mm-hmm. is that like they'll put out an album that people pan mm-hmm. and then 15 years later people are like oh you know what that album was actually really fucking good right because like look at what happened with new adventures in hi-fi everybody fucking hated that when it came out yeah i don't and then comes back around everybody's like you know what that's maybe one of their better ones i don't think that um of montreal is going to have that treatment 10 years out because this i think this is clearly like some people will point to the sunlandic twins as one of their great albums i didn't like it that much um but hissing fauna it's now on its 10 year anniversary yeah, and it holds up. It's yeah. 10 years out. It holds up. It is an amazing album. Yeah. This was like, this is one of the ones that I was like most immediately. Well, I, cause I'd heard it like a million times before. So yeah. like, that's, yeah. Neither, you know, there, but when I went back to it, I was like, Oh yeah, this is still a good fucking album. Yeah. And so like the ones that I was listening to them, I was like, I know why Paul likes this, but it doesn't either say anything to me or maybe it doesn't hold up as well. Like that was my Lou Reed problem. Yeah. Like, I just, I'm like, 
maybe it's because I've heard it so many times and like it's just distilled to those two songs. Mm-hmm. And, like that's what's kind of like that album to me. That I'm like, these haven't aged particularly well. And like mm-hmm. the performance on it hasn't aged particularly well. And like the production of it has aged really fucking poorly. Like yeah. it was so, it feels like the, I mean, the recording equipment we're using literally right now yeah. is more sophisticated than anything he recorded that album yeah. on. You know what I mean? Yeah, and it is like, a bit of a relic. I put but, this shit together for 400 yeah. bucks and a laptop. But I will, and to go to my my song pick, yeah. Um, as much as I love the past as a grotesque animal and it's sprawling, like, self-indulgence. Insanity. Insanity. I still have to pick Heimdall's Gate like a Promethean curse as yeah, but, my yeah. song. How can choice. you not? That's the best song on the record. It's the best song they've ever done. Yeah. It is probably one of my favorite songs of that entire era. And yeah. it's, I, it's it speaks to me so well as someone who suffers from anxiety, depressive disorder. Yeah. I've never actually been on medication and something that I've always avoided. And one of the reasons is because of this song. Well, Be, yeah. I mean, among other things, but like um, the idea that uh, he's begging the chemicals to give him a break and figure it out. And he's not just talking about like drugs, but also his brain chemicals and like the, the relationship that he has between one of the other characters on this album, Nina twin, um, who is like his female muse, who I believe is supposed to represent his wife um, and was asking to her for help as well. I don't know enough about, like the yeah. backstory of like him to yeah. be able to speak to that. So cause. it, yeah, it, this is very much like O'Tour project while still being a band. And this, but this song is so perfect in so many ways. It's got one of my favorite choruses ever. And it's super simple. Um, the synth line on it is just impossible not to dance to again. And also um, one of the things that, drives me crazy about the album version of it that they fixed on Rock Band is that the outro is longer. Yeah. So they they let the synth go for a like little while out, longer yeah. and they play it out. Whereas on the album, it fades into the next song after like um, four measures. Yeah. And I just want a little bit more to finish the song off. So I've looked for the Rock Band version online. I haven't been able to find it yet, but... There yeah. might be... I may be able to help you out with that. Uh, well, what version of Rock Band is it from? It's oh my god! It was while I was still playing it, so it was on your early Xbox One, like Rex, Rock Band two or three. It was well, DLC. It's probably, it's probably on that. Yeah, like it's on, it's it's probably been transferred. If you want to play it, we can play it right now. Yeah, because my Xbox One's still hooked up. So yeah, Ke- uh, Heimdall's Gate, like a Promethean Curse, also known as the Chemicals song. Yeah, it is phenomenal. This album holds up. It's great. Love it. Awesome. Okay. And so come to my number eleven yeah, album. Your number eleven album. And- Number 11 is Joanna Newsom's Divers. Uh, L- let's let him do that. Yeah, that's, and, uh, sorry, that's all okay. I got on this one. Okay. Uh, the story behind this album is that it is a concept album, and it's the only one that Joanna Newsom has explicitly stated that she had a, a theme that Before. wasn't linked together afterwards, like kind of post-album. The idea of uh, East and the the imagery that she was using it coalesced into that idea after the fact whereas divers is more is a, an exploration of a particular topic and in this case it's the the passage of time and how it works and the story behind the album is that there is seemingly like a female narrator who is um trying to find her lover in the in who can has the ability to travel through space time along with these other soldiers who may be birds, but maybe humans and it kind of shifts between the two who can, when you said realistic. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> give me give me a second because I'm getting to that. Um, so they have the ability to travel sideways in time, um, but backwards and forwards they seem to have some trouble with. And so um, the album itself goes from ruminations on life and this ability to travel through time to the end where she commands these bird soldiers to transcend time. And the album is structured so that the final notes on the album and the final word on the album loops into the first notes and first word on the album to create a perfect loop. So the idea of being able to transcend time is to repeat it. And it, be- it becomes a closed time loop that you would see in like something like a Terminator movie or something like that. So it is a very explicitly sci-fi concept, but it's um, explored through music rather than a visual media. So it loops back to the top like Lateralis does. Yeah, but in a way that uh, with Lateralis is more strictly musical, I would say, whereas this is thematic and musically. The last um, word on... Well, there's something to be said about like Spiral Out, like that Jungian theory that they're approaching, like that's part of the like the theme of that yeah yeah it's it's self-actualization yeah. and it, it is a loop too yeah well and, spiral is what they would want to say yeah right? whereas um this the first word in anecdotes the opening song from divers is sending and the final word is trans on time as a symptom so it's transcending yeah and so it, it loop it, the music and words like oh, too clever by half almost like yeah. it's one of those like but the way that it's um, interesting yeah so the idea, and people have l- linked the two songs together uh, to uh, time, the anecdotes, time as a symptom, time as an anecdote. They've l- linked the two songs together so that it could loop perfectly. Yeah. And it's, it's transcendent, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, so what th- that being said, um, there is this highfalutin sci-fi concept on this album. But um, to go back to the, the grounding in it, the themes that she explores throughout the album really talk about how we are remembered in the passage of time. So she talks about, on the second song on the album, Sapakanakin, she talks about how we're trotting over the gravestones of 20,000 people when we walk through this one park in New York, and how we remember certain things and glamorize certain things about our own past and our own self, but the way that we are remembered is... Um, impossible to choose and if we are remembered at all. So it's a bleak as hell album as well, while still hopeful in that the thing that binds her to the the narrative and to her life so that she, they, she can fix time because halfway through time they start populating multiple dimensions and ruining the flow of time. And the way that she gets back is love. This idea that love is not a symptom of time. Time is just a symptom of love. Um, this is the one thing that kind of unifies our, all of our experiences together. It's really cool. Um, but she uses image, like, uh, imagery in real places to kind of ground the image. Like the Chabot Observatory is like a, an, a real observatory in California that she yeah. talks about in uh, March of the 101st Lightborn Brigade, the fifth song on the album. She talks about the, while she's near the end of the album, when she's talking about how she's experiencing time, she is a stewardess who got sucked out of a plane and is falling to her death. And she, the stewardess is describing 
the the outline of the city and the lights as she falls down towards the horizon. Like there's a lot going on on this album, but it's always about like a particular female experience and how they are often observers and recorders of time and what where the power is in that. While men have this freedom that they to explore in the song Divers and the title track, the idea is that she's always waiting on the shoreline for the diver to resurface. It is musically fantastic as usual. Um, there are some sounds and some melodies on this album that really threw me for a loop when I first heard it. I don't think like it's not as it's not her triple album that which is just around two hours long. It's not as comp I would say musically complex as East because it doesn't have a full orchestra from for most of the song or for any of the songs, but it's still big, conceptually big, and really fun to pick apart like the joanna newsome fandom still to this day is discussing this album it came out two years ago and we're still is this their most recent one then? i guess 2015 2015 okay. yeah it came out in 2015 and then uh one of the outtakes joanna newsome doesn't have outtakes for her albums she has songs they take her five years to write and finish that's off. uh that's probably a misnomer i bet you she's one of those people who has them all in an archive somewhere yeah that but, you'll just never see. Yeah, but there's. I think there's maybe not, maybe not to the um, the Prince level. Yeah, but, but in the in terms of s- complete songs that have emerged from these recording yeah, yeah, sessions, yeah. only two have ever happened. One is what we have known from the Milk Eyed Mender, her first album, and Make Hay from Divers. And Make Hay is an amazing song, but she pulled it out because she couldn't quite fit it into the themes of the album, even though it kind of speaks really strongly to the things the themes of the album. She had her reasons. I still think it's an amazing song. The whole album, I think, is pretty incredible. Although they, she has a cover of an old Americana song that was made famous by Karen Dalton uh, called Same Old Man. That's kind of skippable. But I, uh, this is an album that I love to listen to front to back because the and maybe looping once to the first song again because it's so good. And to get that experience of the, the cyclical nature of time that she's trying to convey front to back. I think it's a beautiful album. Awesome. All right. So did you pick a song? Um, the song that I'm going to pick for this album is the first song is anecdotes. I think that it encapsul- encapsulates everything I love about Joanna Newsom. Honestly, um, it's a six minute song. So it's a little bit, it's actually shorter than mo- all of her songs on East. It's very ambitious. It's beautiful. It has a lot of movement. It's it. Uh, calls out the themes of the album while still playing with a lot of the imagery of the birds and the these bird soldiers who are a particular form of bird called a nightjar who are who lay their eggs on the ground and are able to camouflage themselves very easily and so she uses these birds as an image throughout the album to to talk about the passage of time and like yeah it's so good it just it kills me every time I hear it, and that song, halfway through, once it, once the the key changes, makes my heart beat fast nice. when I listen to it. So yeah, cool. So that's your song. What we'll do, um, I'm just thinking about this now. Is um, we've done we've done some Spotify playlists that we've shared with the listeners mm-hmm. at large. What I will do is get you to write me up your song picks okay from all your stuff and send them to me and i'll put together a spotify playlist to post along with this episode mm-hmm. um so that people can go get a taste i mean obviously you have the list and stuff like that yeah. you can just go get 
Joanna Newsom is not on Spotify. Yeah, that's fine. We don't. Nobody cares. Nobody's <laughs> She's on gonna, Apple Music. Drag nobody's, City. Nobody's going to want to listen to that. I'm going to put it up on YouTube anyway and put the YouTube link on there on, my, on, the, on the on the page. That's because fine. you have to listen we to it too. Um, we can <laughs> comment. We can put it into the comments on the. But I figured doing a playlist will get the majority of this stuff out of the way, mm-hmm. and then we can this way you guys can do us. Um, but I think we're going to call it because we are quickly approaching. We're just under the two hour mark now. So we're doing awesome. But I'm going to thank everybody for listening. Um, you can let us know what your thoughts are about Paul's album picks um, or anything else that we talked about tonight, um, including me interrupting him and <laughs> ever being, being a fucking horrible podcast host and all that other good stuff. Um, you can comment on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash dance robot dance podcast. You can shoot us a Twitter, um, which is specifically me because I seem to manage the Twitter account. So at DRD underscore podcast. Or you can shoot us an email. Nobody's ever emailed us. You can be the first. Be that first person to email us. DanceRobotDancePodcast at gmail.com. You can subscribe to us if you haven't already on Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. I think they're the big two now. I know Stitcher's still kind of like a thing, but I don't know if people still use it. Any podcatching app uh, that you use, you can get us on. Give us a review of your platform of choice. That would be a huge help to us. I think we have one review on iTunes that I put there, so... Five stars, guys. Five stars. Five stars across the board. Yeah, five stars. Um, That's about it. So I am Mark. I was your host and your regular Dance Robot Dance member. And I'm going to say thank you to Paul. Thank you for having me on again. And uh, safe travels, buddy. So uh, you even know. though you're leaving tomorrow and I, you're going to be at the house for most of that time. So that's awesome. But yeah, but I'll podcast. I'm leaving on, on a jet, jet plane. plane. Don't know no. when I'll, I'll be, be back, back again. again. Actually, you kind of do. You kind of told us when you'll be back again. I th- about a year and a half, I might be, uh, you know, back in Canada. But you know, well, there's always yeah. conflict. Yeah, <laughs> may, may rush that. So. Yeah, that's true. If I end up getting airlifted from uh, South Korea because of North Korea, I might be here a lot sooner than people expect. There <gasps> is, there is always, and it, things are looking pretty grim this week. So. Uh, you never know. Uh, it, all right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon. What do you want to say? Nothing. You, you know, you're just jawing at the microphone. I'm just jawing at the microphone. That's awesome. Visual bits. Visual bits on an audio podcast. Yeah. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Have a good one. We'll talk to you very soon. Bye.